Zoom class. Is my mic on? Flashback, PTSD. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> All right, well, my name is Chad. Um, I am a teacher by, by trade, so summer is a chance for me to um, not think about that for a while, kind of relax, or in, in many ways just kind of shift my attention more to family at this season of my life with two kids. Um, and so Casey asked me to, to, um, to possibly preach over the summer, and I got pretty excited about it. I, I really enjoyed this series about remembering, and I was going to, like, first do it early in June so I wouldn't have to think about it, like, for the rest of summer, but I got the last slot in July because <laughs> that's just how my summer panned out. So I've been thinking about this stuff for, like, weeks and weeks and weeks, and um, it's incredible to me how much of the Bible is about remembering um, like if, like if you, almost like if you'd like, op uh, especially if you up, open up like the Old Testament, right? It's like, remember this, remember this, this time something happened. Or if you look at the, uh, the New Testament, you know, Paul's writing, remember Jesus, remember that whole thing, right? So any kind of like moral admonition or some sort of charge, um, to the audience is always based in memory. And that's what I want to explore this morning. My sermon is called Rebellion in the Wilderness. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that. So my son Sam, he hates going to bed. He'll do whatever he can to delay the moment we shut off the lights and close his door. He'll request another book, ask a string of really philosophical questions, <laughs> suddenly become absolutely dehydrated, or he'll have a full bladder, or he'll just cry and cry and cry, hoping that we might finally cave to his demands and finally let him stay up all night. I love it to sleep now, but when I was a kid, I was just like him. Uh, in fact, when I was around eight years old, I remember one specific night when I just couldn't fall asleep. Maybe I was too worked up from a full day of activity, or I was looking forward to something the next morning. I don't know. Uh, I don't, but, but I do remember my dad's advice, because I wandered out into the living room and uh, told him I couldn't sleep. And he said, oh, well, just read the book of Numbers. <laughs> Pretty bad uh, theological <laughs> advice, <laughs> but pretty good parenting advice, actually. Um, if you've ever read the book of Numbers, you can probably already guess why he considered this portion of scripture sleep-inducing. <laughs> Entire chapters are devoted to long lists of obscure names and census data. And when you do manage to slog your way through it, you're confronted with pages and pages of puzzling law codes and narratives. That night, I cracked open my Bible and soon fell fast asleep. For years later, whenever my brain and body couldn't shut off, the book of Numbers became my personal sleep medication. <laughs> However, now that I have a better understanding of the Bible as a whole, and I've actually read all of Numbers, um, I'm convinced that Numbers doesn't sedate us. It wakes us up. It rouses us. Granted, the long lists and strings of Numbers are still there. There's no getting around that. But the sweeping narrative of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, uh, reaches its climax in Numbers. Uh, and this helps us remember who God is and who we are, uh, and what's more enlivening than that. One of my favorite shows is The Good Place. Anyone see The Good Place? It's like now a couple years old, which is like millions of years in internet time. Um, <laughs> my favorite show and my favorite person in the show, or character in the show, is named Chidi. Uh, and he's in this real like head in the clouds, um, high-strung, awkward nerd who's often paralyzed with indecision about even the most basic things, right? For example, in one of the later seasons, he's given a test. He must choose between two hats that are identical in every way except their color. 
and he fails the test, not because he picks the wrong hat, but because it takes him over an hour to make a decision. The test is whether he can quickly decide something or not. Last week, I found myself in Kroger comparing cans of salmon. <laughs> and as I tried choosing between two basically identical products, I thought, Chad, don't be like Chidi. Just pick something. Happened uh, another time about a year ago with cheese. <laughs> My guess is that you can think of a character from a show, a movie, or a book who reminds you of yourself. Chances are that this comparison illuminates both the good and the bad aspects of yourself. And it's even possible that recognizing less desirable points of similarity has impacted the way you act, just as it did for me. We use stories to see ourselves more clearly. When the biblical authors looked at the Israelites in the book of Numbers, it was like peering into a mirror. They saw themselves and their own communities. In, uh, for example, in Psalm 78, the speaker begins a psalm about Israel's history with these remarks. And look how much, of, or listen to how much of this is just tied to memory. My people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth at the parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from our descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children so the next generation would know them, uh, even the children yet to be born. And they, in turn, would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commandments. They would not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. The psalmist goes on to retell Israel's history, emphasizing key moments of Israel's unfaithfulness. And many of the New Testament writers pick up this theme as well. Paul tells his audience in 1 Corinthians 10, Now, these things occurred to the Israelites in the wilderness as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and go up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in, day 20, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did, and they were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did, and they were killed by a destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Paul and the psalmist are screaming, watch out, pay attention, be on guard, do not follow the path of your ancestors. This morning, I'd like to follow this tradition of reading as we look at a particular moment from the book of Numbers to help us remember who we are and who God is. I'll specifically look at Numbers 13 and 14, but I'm going to kind of pick little bits of it here and there because it's kind of hard to string together. And I found a paraphrased version called the Living Bible, which is not the New Living Bible, which I realized this morning, or like the New Living Translation, but a different one that some guy in the 70s wrote. So um, it's hard to find, but it's on Bible Gateway if you want to look it up. So that'll be Numbers 13 and 14. So to do this story justice, we need some context for the story as a whole. We can't just jump right in and really understand, like, why the moment in the story matters. So let's begin with the book's title. Uh, in the Hebrew tradition, the book is not called Numbers. That's a later thing. It's actually called In the Desert or In the Wilderness, which is a translation of the book's opening phrase. And I think it's actually a better title, because even though there aren't long lists of numbers, the point isn't the numbers themselves. The point is the crisis in the wilderness. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, 
unfold the foundational story of God creating the world and choosing the Israelites to carry out his redemptive purposes. So here's a quick summary of each book. In Genesis, God chooses Abraham to be the patriarch of a people who will bless the Israelites. This is, or the, the nations. This is Israel. This is the Israelites. This is the Hebrews. All of those are kind of synonyms. In Exodus, Abraham's descendants are slaves in Egypt who seem to be abandoned by God until Moses is raised up as a leader. We hear about the ten plagues, the Passover, the parting of the Red Sea, and the people arriving at the foot of Mount Sinai, where they enter into a covenant or promise with God. The book of Leviticus outlines the requirements of this contract um, and addresses how an unholy people can live in the presence of a holy God. And then this brings us to Numbers. The people who have been freed from slavery, guided on a harrowing journey, and addressed by God himself from a mountaintop, are ready to set out on a two-week road trip to the land promised to Abraham. They're on the verge of having a home freed from the per persecution of the surrounding nations. They're on the edge of fully enjoying a paradise flowing with milk and honey. They're on the cusp of finally seeing their dreams and their ancestors' dreams finally coming to fruition. To me, it reminds me of all those seniors in my class who are like, oh, it's like the promised land is out there. I'm going to graduate. Life's going to start. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. At, and maybe that's how you feel after college too, right? Or whatever the next little thing is. As the people are still approaching the border, God instructs Moses to send spies to the land of Canaan. So one leader from each tribe is selected to scout things out. And so this story is told in chapter 13. I'm going to read through some of it and make some comments. Go northward. So this is Moses talking to the people. Go northward into the hill country and see where the, what the land is like. See also what the people are like there, uh, whether they are strong or weak, many or few, and whether the land is fertile or not. And what cities are there? and whether there are villages or, um, that are fortified, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are many trees. Don't be afraid, and bring back some samples of the crops you see. After 40 days of exploration, they returned from their tour. They made their report to Moses, Aaron, and all the people of Israel in the wilderness, and they showed the fruit that they had brought with them. This was their report. We arrived in the land you sent us to see, and it is indeed a magnificent country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is some fruit we have brought as proof. But the people living there are powerful, and their cities are fortified and very large. And what's more, we saw giants there. Uh, these giants live in the south, where in the hill countries there are other groups like the Hittites, the uh, Jebusites, the Amorites, down along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and in the Jordan River Valley of the Canaanites. But Caleb reassured the people. Caleb was another spy that went out, the only really faithful one of the twelve. Uh, and as they stood before Moses, let us go up at once and possess the land, he said for we, we are able to conquer it. Not against people as strong as they are, the other spies said. They will crush us. So the majority report of the spies was negative. The land is full of warriors. The people are powerfully built. And we saw that some of the giants lived there, descendants of the ancient race um, that we kind of came across in Genesis. Uh, we That's a whole other rabbit trail, right? But we won't get into that. We felt like grasshoppers before them. They were so tall. Then all of the people began weeping aloud, and they carried on. All night. Their voices rose in a great chorus of complaint against Moses and Aaron. We wish we had died in Egypt, they wailed, or even here in the wilderness, rather than be taken into this country ahead of us. Jehovah, which is another name for God, Jehovah will kill us there, and our wives and little ones will become slaves. Let's get out of here and return to Egypt. The idea swept the camp. Let's elect a leader and to take us back to Egypt, they shouted. Then Moses and Aaron <coughs> fell face downward on the ground before the people of Israel. 
Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, ripped their clothes and said to the people, It is a wonderful country ahead, and the Lord loves us. He will bring us safely into the land and give it to us. It is very fertile, a land flowing with milk and honey. Oh, do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are but bread for us to eat. The Lord is with us and has removed his protection from them. Don't be afraid of them. But the only response of the people was the talk of stoning them. Now, this is a weird story. So how does this help us remember something? How does this remember who God is, and how does this help us remember who we are? <clears throat> I think there's three things that come to mind that'll kind of structure some of my comments. So here's my first point. We rebel against God when we fail to remember how he has provided for us. The Israelites, in a moment of fear, as they gaze at the towering giants in the promised land, refuse to remember God's faithfulness in Egypt. They even believe that the promised land is some kind of malicious trap. God will kill us there, they claim, and our wives and our little ones will become slaves. Their absurd solution is to run back to Egypt, back to enslavement. And this isn't the first time they've said this sort of thing. In chapter 11, they wish for the good old days in Egypt. They complain, oh, but for a few bites of meat, and that we had some of the delicious fish we enjoyed so much in Egypt, and the wonderful cucumbers and melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now our strength is gone, and day after day, we have to face this manna. So they're complaining that instead of all this great food, they just get this stuff pro divinely provided by God <laughs> to completely sustain them in the wilderness while they're not slaves. They have short-term memory. And further back in the book of Exodus, when Moses ascends Mount Sinai to receive the law from Yahweh himself, the people in their impatience craft a golden calf to worship an idol that was likely formed using gold, plundered from the Egyptians when God delivered them from slavery just moments before. I mean, where, did, where do you think they got this gold? They were slaves in Egypt. They plundered the Egyptians before they head out of, uh, out of town. That's directly referenced in Exodus. And now they have this golden calf. I mean, this is the, 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 um, the way they're using the blessings that God has given them. When the absurdity of the reasoning behind rebellion is laid out so clearly, it's difficult for me to sympathize with the Israelites. It's so obvious that these people are idiots. <laughs> how could they so quickly forget how God has come through for them time and time again? Then I remember that this story is meant as a mirror. It's presumptuous to assume that I am somehow so much more different, that I'm so much more faithful, so much more patient and pure. I just finished my 10th year as a high school teacher, which is pretty crazy. Summer is always a time to reflect, but this year I felt even more urgency to think about the direction of my career. I feel restless, like I might need to make a change. My work situation is actually pretty good. God has clearly provided for me, but questions still spiral in my head. What do I want to accomplish? Am I wasting my time? Is there a more fulfilling opportunity out there? Do I have the strength to teach another 20 or 30 years? And here's the question that nags at me the most. Do I make enough money as a teacher to provide for my family? Am I going to make it? Having questions is nothing new for me, if you know me at all. Um, it's just that the particular questions have evolved over time. Just a few years ago, I was asking things like, where should I attend college? What should my major be? Where should I work? Should I get married, buy a house, try to have kids? And more abstract, but just as urgent questions have always been just below the surface. Why am I a Christian? 
Is all this stuff true? How do I know God? Can I know God? Can I really find satisfying answers? And my guess is that some or all of those questions might resonate with you. Or more likely, you have your own particular set of questions based on your personality and your context. When I find myself asking these questions, my default response is to be fearful. I'm going to ask questions either way, right? Like that's a part of life. We have to ask questions. It's actually helpful, um, a helpful exercise. But how we choose to respond to them is what I want to focus on. My default response is to be fearful. I fear the limits of my abilities. I fear unpredictable circumstances. I fear failing the people I love. I fear lack of direction. I fear never finding resolution. And at the root of all these fears, and likely all the fears you might have, is the fear that God cannot be trusted. Like the Israelites looking at the enemies, uh, towering over them, I look at my circumstances looming before me and think, God, you really want me to go there? Armed only with the memory of your faithfulness? I don't think so. Phrases from numbers even spring to mind. Jehovah will kill us there. And our wives and little ones will become slaves. Let's get out of here and return to Egypt. Let's elect a leader to take us back to Egypt. There is another choice when I ask these questions, and it's a response with an attitude of trust. However, this isn't a super go lucky, the grass is always greener, health and wealth, gospel sort of trust. The trust I'm suggesting is much deeper than that. It's more in the spirit of an axiom I heard from the theologian John Stackhouse. And his words are my second point. God will provide what you need to do his will in the world. God will provide what you need to do his will in the world. Notice what Stackhouse isn't saying here. He isn't not saying that if you follow Jesus, then you will have everything you want. Or that God will provide for your every physical need. Or that God will make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. We can all identify the obvious ways God has provided for us. It's the ways that he has failed or seemed to have failed that nag at us and lead us to rebellion. In fact, the Bible itself consistently testifies to how seemingly terrible things have been for those who trusted him. Moses, the hero in our story, so to speak, not really a hero, there's some nuances there, the main character, Moses suffered for years trying to lead a rebellious nation and eventually even sinned against God when, uh, later in the number of, uh, book of Exodus. John the Baptist was beheaded for announcing that the kingdom of God was at hand. Paul was rejected by his people and suffered in prison. Jesus was crucified by the very people God has chosen to bless the nation. That one, to me, is, is perhaps the most complex, uh, perplexing, right? Like, if you think about the problem of evil, the problem of bad in the world, Jesus' crucifixion was the worst possible thing that could have happened. The most unjustified sort of action. I think that's actually a little, a little thing to think about. If you wrestle with the problem of evil, start there. Don't, don't start with, like, the obvious evils in our world. Start with the fact, okay, what kind of story is this? What kind of world are we living in? How, what kind of God do we serve? Where we can start with Jesus' death to understand evil. <coughs> that's not an answer. That's just a suggestion. <laughs> God will provide what you need to do as well in the world. This statement helps us by reframing everything to be about God and his purposes 
rather than us and our purposes. When I think of things this way, I realize that being provided for by God does not mean that all of my intellectual puzzles are solved, that I have a perfect roadmap for my career, that my family will have perfect health, that I can meet all my financial needs and comfort, and that I will live in a perfect state of bliss. Being provided for means that I am given what I need to participate in God's purposes that are far grander than my personal individual survival project. This is what I need to believe to navigate the wilderness. This is the trusting attitude I need that will keep me from building my own golden calf, inciting a rebellion, and fleeing to Egypt. Of course, the degree that we're comforted by God's provision depends entirely on the kind of God we believe he is. If he is good, then his methods are entirely justified. If he is not good, then he's no more than a divine sadist, causing pain and misery to somehow achieve his ends. The writer of Numbers gives us a glimpse of God's character through the rest of the story. Continuing in chapter 13, verse 11, God responds to the people's complaint. Then this is what, it, what we're told. Then the glory of the Lord appeared, and the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people despise me? Will they never believe me, even after the miracles I have done among them? I will disinherit them and destroy them with a plague, and I will make you into a nation far greater and mightier than they are. Moses is horrified by this possibility and pleads with God to spare the people. He says, Oh, please show the great power of your patience by forgiving our sins and showing us your steadfast love. Forgive us, even though you have said that you don't let sin go unpunished, and that you punish the father's fault in the children of the third and fourth generation. Oh, I plead with you, pardon the sins of these, this people because of a magnificent, steadfast love, just as you have forgiven them all the time from when we left Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, All right, I will pardon them as you have requested. But I vow by my own name that just as it is true that all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, so it is true that not one of the men who has seen my glory and the miracles I did both in Egypt and in the wilderness and ten times refused to trust me and obey me shall ever see the land I promised to this people's ancestors. Basically he's saying, remember that promise you've been hoping for, that your ancestors have hoped for? You're not going to get it. But my servant Caleb is a different kind of man. He has obeyed me fully. I will bring him into the land he entered as a spy, and his descendants shall have their full share of it. But now, since the people of Egypt are so afraid of the Amalekites and the Canaanites living in the valleys, tomorrow you must turn back into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, back to where they came, in the direction of where they came from Egypt. You said your children would become slaves in the wilderness of the, or the sorry, slaves of the people of the land. Well, instead, I will bring them safely into the land, and they shall inherit what you have despised. So there's this promise that even though the, um, the Israelites aren't going to make it in, there's a promise that goes on to their kids, where there is some degree of uh, hope. Let me just want to point out that. We'll come back to that later. Um, but as for you, your b dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. You must wander in the desert like nomads for 40 years. In this way, you will pay for your faithful faithlessness until the last of you dies dead in the desert, or lies dead in the desert. Since the spies were in the land for 40 days, you must wander in the wilderness for 40 years, a, a year for each day, bearing the burden of your sins. I will teach you what it means to reject me. I, Jehovah, have spoken. 
Every one of you who has conspired against me shall die here in the wilderness. The book continues of the people in the land for 40 years until they die off and the next generation enters the promised land. In Deuteronomy, the final book of the Pentateuch, these first five books, Moses delivers a long sermon with words of wisdom and warning, reminding the people of God's salvific work and reiterating the conditions of the covenant. So the Israelites do eventually see the promise to Abraham's family fulfilled, but not in the way they hoped or expected. Now, remember that question of like, we said God um, will provide what you need to do his will in the world, but that really, the amount that comforts us hinges on the kind of God we believe God is. And so I, I think in a weird way, this, this response that God has actually helps us find comfort in God's character. At first glance, we may not see a whole lot about God in this story that we like. He seems to overreact when he dooms the people to a life of misery because they complained one too many times. Where's the love? Where's the grace? There's another way to interpret this story, though. God's judgment is simply him allowing the people to have what they desire. Remember, just moments before, these people were begging not to enter the promised land. They wanted to be enslaved in Egypt. In light of this desire, God's punishment is actually far better since he will continue caring for them despite what they wanted. And this brings me to my third point, which helps us see the character of God most clearly. God remains with us in the wilderness. God remains with us in the wilderness. There's a common parenting strategy, not necessarily one that my wife and I follow really, but <laughs> it's out there. I'm not, I'm, I don't mean this as like an endorsement, whatever, okay. There's good and bad ways this is done. A common strategy for disciplining parents is to use absence as a form of punishment. This might involve a parent refusing to speak to a boy for getting a bad grade in a class, or, you know, sending a girl to her room for talking back. The reasoning here is that distance from the parent helps the child reflect on his or her behavior and improve in the future. We often believe this is the way God disciplines us. I don't think it is, though. Now, when God speaks to Moses about wiping out the Israelites and starting from scratch, it might seem like he's reached his limit. But that's not what he ultimately decides to do. Um, Moses says, wait, remember, remember your steadfast love, right? And we're kind of reminded as the reader, remember that this is a God who has been faithful and will continue to be faithful because it's in his nature. God could have said as well, all right, it, uh, you're done with me, then I'm done with you. Go back to Egypt. I'll return when your kids are grown up, but for now you're on your own. Or, you know, let's forget this whole covenant thing entirely. You've broken it. Like, we don't have to go to the promised land, right? <laughs> it's like, I like this analogy of like, let's go do a fun day at the water park, you know, and the kids are like complaining in the backseat. All right, we'll turn this car around. <laughs> we don't have to go. <laughs> What seems at first like a wait, I'll back up. Um, instead, his punishment, the, the consequence, is that he sentences them to 40 years in the desert. What seems at first like some sort of retaliation is actually an incredible act of grace because God is under no obligation to hold up his end of the covenant. The Israelites have set themselves against the will of God, just like the Egyptians did, so God has every right to bring down plagues and pain. 
He has every right to abandon them just as they wanted to abandon him. In fact, the last time I was reading through Exodus and I got to the story of the golden calf, there's all these interesting parallels between the way God treats the rebellious Israelites in that moment with how he treats the Egyptians that were persecuting them. God doesn't look at the Israelites and say, oh, you're somehow like somehow more special, like you're inherently better people, so I'm going to treat you differently. It's that he says, okay, I'm making a covenant with this specific group of people to do my will in the world, and those who refuse to or rebel against that will, who rebel against me, like, I'm going to treat you accordingly. And so you get kind of this, like, fair-handed judgment against these uh, idolatrous Israelites, just as you had him treating the uh, Egyptians just pages before. God remains with us in the wilderness. He cares about us too much to let us do what we want. We see this through the remainder of the book of Numbers. God continues revealing himself through his law. God continues providing for the physical needs of the people. God continues insisting the people stay loyal to him alone. It's not like he says, okay, 40 years in the wilderness, the next page, okay, we're now entering the promised land now that everyone's died off. It's, okay, 40 years in the wilderness, here's more stuff I have to say to you. There's often a kind of narrative um, about the Christian life where it's like, okay, well, um, we're going to get saved and then we're going to go to heaven. Like, that's the goal, right? Um, Eugene Peterson once quoted this, this like, uh, what was it? It was this sermon illustration from this pastor years and years and years ago. And <laughs> he used to tell people that, this is not Peterson, this is the other guy, that the, the Billy Sunday, the famous preacher Billy Sunday, evangelist, he used to say the best thing that can happen is that you get saved, walk outside, and get hit by a truck. And Peterson's point was that that's a certain way of viewing life um, and isn't necessarily inaccurate. You know, there will be great joy when you see Jesus face to face if, if you love him and, and um, you're after him. But Peterson's point is that there is a formative process between now and heaven. This is not just like killing time during study hall. Like this is us learning, continuing to grow drawing closer and closer and closer to Jesus. And when we wake up in heaven, so to speak, it's a continuation of that journey. And in some Catholic circles, there's this idea that the whole, and I think it's a Christian idea too, that the, <laughs> the whole purpose of your life is to prepare for your death. Uh, monks would sleep in their own casket as a way to remind themselves, this is not my home. That's not to say that they were going to end things immediately and immediately try to get to heaven. It's that we see this entire day-by-day day journey through the wilderness that we all experience as a way of drawing closer and closer to God as he draws, or draws us, closer and closer to himself. This time here is not wasted. It's formative. Our rebellion is a chance for God to draw us closer to himself. If you're not convinced, just look at Jesus. He seeks us out in the midst of our rebellion. He is the man who sought out Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He is the rabbi who told the Jewish religious leaders, I've not come for the healthy, but for the sick. He is the father who runs out to embrace his wayward child in the story of the prodigal son. He is the friend who forgives Peter for rejecting him three times. He is the God who looks at you 
And despite the innumerable ways you rise up against him and will continue to rise up against him, he embraces you. He remains. So how do we move forward with that in mind, right? We have these big things that we remember about ourselves. Big things that we remember about God. I think it's going to be contextual. I think it's different for each of us with how we actually live that out. I think the first thing to do is to remember, right? First thing to do is to say, wait, what am I doing? What is my view of how God's going to provide for me? What is my view about how I view my acts of rebellion, my sins against God? Do I take those seriously? Are they just kind of like slight things or inconveniences or things that God will deal with but don't really matter? Or what's my view of God? Do I believe that God is with me through this life or do I believe he's checked out? All those things are, again, highly specific to you. One, one thing is consistent, though, at least. For those of us um, who follow Jesus, we persevere by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who endured the trials of the wilderness and ushered in the kingdom of God our spiritual ancestors longed for. If you look at the whole history of the Pentateuch, right, there's this grand narrative, they enter the promised land, right, and then you're like, jump to 2022, it's like, wait, what happened? They entered the promised land? Where's the story? How does Jesus fit into this, right? Now, that's a big question, but the thing that I want to point to as a possible way of understanding some of that is that the promise of the promised land was a glimpse of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God as we have it now, the kingdom of God as it will be in the future. And so as the Israelites continued to struggle through their desert years, we find ourselves in a similar situation, struggling toward Zion, struggling toward the kingdom. And the way we get there is we set our eyes on Jesus. Communion seems like a fitting next step. Just as the Israelites received manna to sustain them, we receive bread and wine. We don't rely on these things physically, but they're a reminder that our journey through the wilderness, um, yeah, our journey depends on God's grace. It's not like we're suddenly going to decide to do something and then we're going to march out of here and somehow live differently or live the way that we've been, whatever. Um, it's a reminder that any kind of response that we have begins with the grace of God. What better way is there to begin our journey through the wilderness and beyond? So we have these tables of juice and bread. If you follow Jesus, if you call Jesus Lord, you are welcome to take communion with us. We practice an open communion. It'll be really simple. The rows up front will stand up first. They'll come to the middle. They'll walk around, get their um, juice and bread, and then just file back in. After everyone has the elements, um, I'll say a kind of a, a, a prayer over communion, and then we'll um, end with some songs. Okay, so if you're in the front, you can stand up.